Welcome to Greenfluence, the podcast that brings you the latest in sustainability, responsible investing, and climate change. I'm Sophia, your assistant content and podcast editor, and I'm so excited for you guys to listen to this week's episode. This week, we are talking with Giles Gunasekra, founder and CEO of Global Impact Initiative. Get ready for episode four. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Greenfluence podcast. For this episode, we are very lucky to have Giles Gunasekara. Giles is the founder and CEO of the Global Impact Initiative. So welcome on board, Giles. Thank you. Great to be here. Awesome. Well, I guess we've really wanted to have you on board for a long time, and you've got so much experience in the whole impact investing space, and you've got 25 years of experience in the financial services space. So really want to understand how you've made that transition and trends in the space and how to measure impact and things like that. And before we begin, I really want to start off with how it all started for you, a bit about your background. So you have a background in finance and you ended up completing a Bachelor of Commerce in Finance Management and a Master's in Applied Finance and Investment. Um, how do you get into this sort of degrees and how did that help you make the transition into an impact-driven career? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, yeah, thanks again for the opportunity to um, to speak to you guys today. Um, so my journey into this space um, has, has certainly not been linear, um, but probably been a long time coming, if that makes sense. Uh, so when I was um, completing high school, uh, well, firstly, wind back a little bit, um, I had a pretty amazing experience at the age of 10, uh, we lived overseas or we travelled overseas for about six months. Um, my dad's a doctor and uh, he had the opportunity to go and do some study in England. Uh, so we lived in London for four months and then we travelled around Europe for, 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 two, for a further two months. Um, so my, you know, my, my grade four, grade five learning experiences um, you know, was going to the Tower of London, visiting Big Ben, going to Westminster Abbey, um, going to Westminster. Um, so I had these really kind of immersive um, you know, learning experiences, going to cal- going to galleries, um, you know, all this incredible um, history, which you obviously just don't get um, in Australia. And, and obviously it was, you know, uh, very colonial Western history. Uh, but regardless, it was history that, you know, we didn't have ready access to. And then when you added on that, you know, European history, you know, that was, um, you know, just it was it was an incredible experience. Um, so one that really, uh, I guess, brought home the value of travel and the, 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 the importance of experiencing different cultures. Uh, but it also led me down the path of um, I, I, got, I just got hooked on aviation. So I came back, I joined the Air Force cadets, um, which, which I did in my spare time. I learned to fly a glider solo at the age of 14. I flew a plane solo at the age of 16. Um, so I was going down this path of, you know, um, basically wanting to be a, um, a, a pilot. Uh, but also at the same time, I had this really great interest in finance. So I bought my first shares when I was 16. Um, my, my dad introduced me to a patient of his who was a stockbroker. I put on a suit, um, went into Collins Street and, uh, with, I think it was a couple of thousand dollars, which at the time was quite a bit of money, you know, bought my, bought my, bought my first shares, um, and went down that path as well. So I had, kind of had these two simultaneous interests going and, and I thought, you know, 
Um, one day I'm either going to be, you know, a Qantas pilot sitting, you know, sitting in the cockpit reading the financial review, um, or I'll be reading the financial review and learning how to fly on the weekends. Um, so it actually ended up the latter because I, I got through all the um, psychological testing and fitness testing and, and all that sort of thing for the Air Force. Uh, but unfortunately, I didn't have perfect vision, um, and it was just I was slightly short-sighted. They were only taking 12, 12 pilots nationally. Um, so although I had the academic qualifications and all the other um, qualifications, um, and I'd actually know, knew how to fly, um, yeah, they, I, I, I failed on on that you know small little element. So that led me down the path of finance, um, and we can talk you know as to how I got into impact investing, but that was. Uh, very much the path into finance. And I continued uh, my involvement with the cadets and continued my involvement with flying. But yeah, those, those, um, I guess how I got to finance full time was, uh, yeah, was, was, was through, I guess, failure, um, in, in some ways, um, in a lot of ways. You know, I, I wasn't able to get into, uh, the Air Force, um, or any of the forces because my slight, you know, um, short sightedness, but, I had a backup plan, which was which which was great. Um, not a lot of people do, but I was fortunate enough that I had um, a backup plan and uh, followed that into finance and and ultimately into investments uh, through working through a number of different fund managers. Yeah, I think you touched on some really great points there. It's like this career in finance; it kind of happened by accident or because of circumstance, and it seems that like you've really found your calling there. And I think like it's very interesting that these days, you know, that the idea of a linear career, it's it's not as prominent as I'm guessing it was, I'm guessing it was 20, 25 years ago. So I, I think in a way that, you know, it's super interesting that you had this backup option and um, very, very curious as to, um, as to understand, like, what was, what was the um, impression at the time of having a career in finance? And was there that sort of impact lens in finance at the time? And like, um, was that something that you did in your studies or anything like that? Not really, um, but I also, and, the, and this has led me, um, you know, into impact investing and into establishing the business. You know, I did my first volunteering at the age of six with my mum, uh, and that was delivering meals on wheels. Uh, and, you know, the first generation Australian, you're always, it's always rammed home uh, that, you know, you're fortunate. Uh, we've got incredible opportunities here in Australia um, and that also we have to give back. So, you know, that was my first volunteering uh, was through Meals on Wheels. I then joined Amnesty at the age of 16 um, uh, and continue that relationship with Amnesty, you know, to this day. Um, then got involved in a whole bunch of other, um, you know, not-for-profits like World Vision, you know, um, used to do fundraising, answer phones over Christmas time, all that sort of thing. So I've always had um, uh, volunteering, uh, social justice, human rights kind of um, in, you know, in, in and around me um, through the volunteering work that I did. And, and, I, and I made that very conscious decision that I, I wanted to, you know, give back. You know, a lot of people, uh, particularly in the finance world, will, you know, do their finance career, and then when they retire, they'll join a whole bunch of boards, and and that will be their contribution. Um, and I'm not discounting that. You know that that is the way that they you know create their impact. I've always been um, of the view that you know I would like to contribute al along the way. And you know the the great thing about you know being around not for profit boards and not for not for profit organisations is that. 
Um, yes, you're contributing, but you get a lot more in return than what the contribution is, you know, just in terms of interaction, learning from people, you know, if one small example, you know, I was on the board of Amnesty International um, for eight years. It was a 14 person board, uh, you know, 80% of the board uh, was, was female. We had an age group of uh, 21 to 65. Um, so it was a really diverse board um, that was all focused about obviously on the on on you know uh, human rights but also how do we work together as a board how do we work together as people you know so all those learnings I definitely wouldn't have got from a corporate environment which was very white very male um, very one-dimensional so a lot of that experience you know helped me in my finance career uh, and yeah just having that I guess um, you know, both parts of your life, you know, the finance world, but also the not-for-profit world really brought it home to me that, you know, the not-for-profit world's got great ideas, but no money uh, or very little money. Uh, the corporate world's got very few good ideas, but lots of money. Um, and so how do we put those two worlds together? For me, it was impact investing. And, and that's what really led to the creation of the business of being able to form a business that took the best out of both worlds uh, but also was about utilising the ecosystem a lot better. And that's unfortunately what a lot of corporates do, what a lot of not-for-profits do, and even what governments do. You know, they they work in their silos. They don't talk to each other. Um, and so our business is able, because of our independence, because of our mandate, because of our UN lead status, to say, let's talk. You know, let's get people in a room that can solve these problems because we're working on these in silos and that's not the way to solve problems. No, Jazz. I think like you touched on some really some some really insightful points, and I think that idea of how you had that concept of volunteering and giving back from when you were younger something that resonates strongly with me. And I'm curious to hear about your thoughts as well, Shri. But I think when I was younger, I just didn't know how to sort of combine that idea of volunteering and giving back into a career. Um, and I think the other thing as well that I found I found very interesting was that idea of merging those two worlds together. Um, that idea, the idea of working in a corporate um, and then the idea of non-for-profits. And I guess you have spent time in your career working for other FS companies such as Merrill Lynch and Colonial First State. Um, very curious how you took a lot of those learnings into, into your current role in Global Impact Initiative. Yeah, really good point. Uh, so the, the, the greatest learning really was that there was no need to reinvent the wheel. Um, you know, there's great fund managers that are already managing money. They've got great people. They've spent a lot of money on resources, on systems, on processes. Um, you know, when I created Global Impact Initiative, even though, you know, at the time I had 20 plus years in funds management, the one thing I knew I didn't want to do was to be a fund manager uh, because of my experience working in funds management and knowing what was out there. And also, that fitted into our um, ecosystem solution, uh, you know, theory um, and now practice, which was, you know, you've got all these components of the industry, of the market, of the world doing really great things. Um, impact investing is a great way to, you know, to, to, to put that together. So that was the first, you know, you know I guess one of the first realisations, um, but also, you know, being an independent organisation. So, you know, when I set up Global Impact Initiative, there was that opportunity to potentially, you know, take my idea and, and utilise it at a, you know, at a fund manager. 
but I deliberately said, no, we need to be independent. We need to do this, um, you know, ourselves. It's a much harder option um, because, you know, in 2015, you had to explain impact investing still to a lot of people. Um, so we spent, spent the first few years very much on education. Uh, but, you know, being independent and then getting endorsement from groups like the UN and, and, and others has been fantastic uh, because it's really enabled us to then say, okay, well, you know, we, we started with this theory that the ecosystem's already working, uh, or the ecosystem's there, but people aren't talking to each other. Um, and now we've got lots of proof statements, particularly with our gender equality fund, where, you know, it's, it's the world's first actively managed um, gender equality fund for both women and girls. Um, there's, it's professionally managed by a very large fund manager called Rubico, but we've also got partnerships like uh, with Grameen, World Vision, UNICEF, UN Women and Malala Fund that help us accelerate social impact for, for girls. So, you know, as an ecosystem solution, uh, it, it, it's there and it's working. Um, and there's more of those that we can do in the climate space, you know, in the housing space. We're doing some really interesting work as well, um, which utilizes disability housing with affordable housing and commercial housing. So there's, yeah, as I said, you know, the, the, um, the theory has now moved into practice, which is the ecosystem's there. Let's, let's use all the constituent parts of that ecosystem that is working and working really well and, and building that into a solution. Amazing. I, I just wanted to reflect on the gender-based investing side of global impact initiative and what you just mentioned, the fund, um, because reflecting on the effects of climate change, uh, it, it's bound to drastically increase in the future and vulnerable communities will be the first to be affected by it. Women, children um, are, are going to be at the forefront of some of these vulnerable groups. So when we reflect on sustainability in the pod here in Greenfluence, we've had a lot of guests um, in climate tech, had a lot of founders on, but I think sustainability should not just be focused on how we should be shifting to using more renewable sources of energy, but it should also include and encompass how we can help with this transition and lend a helping hand to vulnerable communities um, in this shift. So just reflecting on your um, gender-based investing area of global impact initiative, how does this fund aim to provide support to women? Yeah, that's a really, really good question. So first and foremost, you know, a gender lens is applied um, right across our business. So our board is 60% female. Our team is 75% female. Um, 64% of people in our team are being born um, outside Australia. So diversity, equity, inclusion is, is very much embedded into our organisation. And then we take those learnings and that action, you know, to the partnerships that we engage with. So when we're talking to potential partners, suppliers, we're always asking those questions um, around, you know, who's running the company, how many women are there, you know, why aren't there more women in senior management, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, it's very much embedded there. Uh, and to your point, you know, the, you know, what we've seen through COVID and the continuing climate crisis is that women are the most affected. Uh, we wrote a piece last year for COP26 um, for IPE, which is a very large um, pensions and investments magazine um, in, in Europe, 
um, about the intersectionality between climate and gender uh, and how a poor climate affects women and girls uh, first. Um, and but that that inequality gap continues to increase, whether it's it's a developed country or an emerging market. So you know that that interaction uh, or, or or that you know that gap you know continues to widen. We've seen here in Australia some some recent data on on the gender pay gap um, increasing again. Um, you know it, it it's just it's it's just far too common far too too prevalent so you know how we've embedded it into for example our our gender equality fund is we've created a specific uh, unit class within the fund where the investor is investing into a portfolio of companies that have no exposure to alcohol gaming tobacco weapons fossil fuels or adult entertainment We've then applied a gender lens to the portfolio. So we're looking for companies that are specifically helping women in the workforce, either through um, their hiring practices, having more women on boards, women in senior management, um, family-friendly policies, parental leave, you know, a, a variety of different characteristics. We then, uh, are, you know, within one of the unit classes that we've created, um, investors get their a capital appreciation in the value of their portfolio through those companies that then they agree for the income to go to girls charities and specifically the ones I mentioned before Malala Grameen UNICEF UN Women and and uh, and World Vision uh, and that's specifically for girls social impact programs in health education nutrition and social and economic empowerment so when we were doing our research um, on building this fund, you know, one of the th key things that we wanted to achieve was social impact for both girls as well as women. Uh, so there's a number of funds out there that are looking exclusively at women and they do a great job. Uh, but I really felt, um, as did our team in the, in the research of this product, that uh, we wanted to positively affect the lives of girls and, and basically help girls become women. And the common areas uh, that prevailed uh, and, and that girls needed, and this was regardless of you know whether they were born in a developed country or an emerging market, was better access to health, education, nutrition, and social and economic empowerment. So we then did a global search for partners that could help us in those impact areas, and that's how we um, uh, that's how we landed on those five uh, key charities. Uh, but the key difference is is that we do not distribute any money to those charities until we know what the social impact is that's going to be created. So as an example, you know, uh, your, your income will go into, uh, in, into a separate pool, you know, uh, on an annual basis, we'll look at that separate pool and we'll say, okay, as an example, we've got $500,000 to give to the Malala Fund. But before we give it to the Malala Fund, we'll sit down with them and say, which of the SDGs are we going to positively influence? As, as part of this, um, you know, as, as part of making this grant, um, how many girls are going to be educated, what countries they're going to be in, um, what year levels, et cetera, et cetera. And so we can build the social impact case before we distribute the funds and then report on that on an annual basis back to investors, back to donors to say, this is what your money, um, uh, this is the social impact that your money has created. Amazing. So, Going forward in towards reporting, um, what are some of the areas you report in in terms of this fund? 
Yeah, so for the Gender Equality Fund, there's five different SDGs. So um, SDG 5, Gender Equality, um, also SDG around education, around health, uh, nutrition. So um, the great thing about the SDGs is um, you know, there's 17 uh, UN Sustainable Development Goals, but underneath those, uh, 17 SDGs, there's 164 targets and 169 metrics. So we can get really granular on the social impact that we're reporting on and that we're um, looking to create and, and measure and map against. Uh, so they're, they're the broad um, SDGs um, that, we're, you know, that we're measuring, mapping and monitoring to. But uh, another example with an, some affordable housing work that we're doing um, in India, we're measuring, mapping and monitoring to 16 of the 17 SDGs. So the only one that we're not including is life underwater, which I'm very happy about considering it's an affordable housing project. Uh, but, you know, we are able to show that, uh, the, that, that providing safe, sustainable housing, so focusing on, um, you know, the building process, so ensuring that there's circular economy principles in, the, in that building process, we're using waste products, we're using waste for energy, we're using um, renewable energy, um, solar battery, um, we're then able to build a, a gender lens in there. So for example, uh, a lot of low to middle income uh, families, particularly in India, once girls get to the age of 14 and 15, they'll drop out of school. So we've uh, adopted a gender lens uh, to ensure that, you know, girls that are, you know, in the in the complex um, uh, that are under our affordable housing program will get access to a foundation, which then will provide um, access for those families to, to put them, uh, to continue them uh, being at school because the data and has shown that, um, you know, an educated girl or boy um, has a much better um, earning capacity. So um, unfortunately, um, you know, a lot, as I said, a lot of these families will take uh, their girls out of school so that they can produce income for the family when in actual fact keeping them at school for another few few more years um, can provide significantly more income for the family. So, you know, applying that gender lens, that environmental lens um, right from the start and ensuring that, you know, the building is built sustainably, um, that there's community engagement in the design of the building, uh, but then ultimately that the building runs sustainably through solar and battery and then ensuring that the impa impact um, is, is continues to be created, particularly through, you know, gender equality, diversity, inclusion, um, and, and just basically having a sustainable uh, community. Amazing. Um, you, you reflected on the UN Sustainable Development Goals and how this is a, a core um, area that you use um, to monitor growth in Global Impact Initiative. I wanted to touch on um, a podcast you were recently on, Good Bill Hunters. It touches on the impact of being a first-generation migrant in Australia, on your leadership style encompassing resilience, tenacity and persistence and the importance of board diversity in organisations. And you did touch on this earlier on how you aim to provide, um, to create an organisation that is diverse um, and create a team culture that 
is not replicated but more grown. And in this podcast, you talk about this where you say you can replicate a product but a team culture you can't. Can you expand on what you mean by this? Yeah. Um, the I guess one of the greatest learnings that I've had um, uh, you know, in the, in the business world, in the not-for-profit world, has been being given the opportunity uh, to, to lead. Uh, you know, I've, I've been really fortunate that I've had some fantastic leaders that have given me um, ample opportunities to, to, to basically do what I need to do. Um, so I hope and I believe, and, and certainly some of the, um, the track record shows, that then instilling that um, in other people um, is, is really, really useful. So I've always... Um, useful, helpful, and, and, and ultimately impactful. So I've always had the hiring methodology, you know, and, and, and thesis as a, as a, as a leader, as a manager that spend the time, find the right people, but then enable them to do what they need to do, um, and, and take a very hands off approach. And it's not necessarily, um, anyway, it's not, at all about being lazy or not being in, wanting to be involved in the way that they do things. But I just think, um, and have had the belief and had the experience that people learn by doing. Um, and we all learn also by making mistakes. Uh, and as I often tell my team, you know, I'd much rather you ask me what you think is a stupid question than to make a stupid mistake. So I'm here, you know, engage me, ask me questions, but ultimately, you know, you're free to get on and, and do your job. Um, so, you know, we set guidelines, we set frameworks, but I'm definitely not a micromanager. Um, I allow people to, you know, to do what they need to do um, yeah, and also to make their own decisions. Um, I, you know, ask people to communicate with me um, as much or as little as they need, uh, but ultimately, I just take that um, very simplistic approach that, that many others do, and, and it's probably you know easier to do easier to do now, um, you know, in my own business and, and in a business that I've created. But I've but I've adopted the methodology even through you know through through my corporate life, um, through working for large global organisations because I've always had a leader that has always supported me, um, so I've always been very confident. Um, you know, to, to, to then um, instill that confidence uh, and that approach, you know, in my team. So really it's, it's, it's come down to, to leadership on my behalf, but I've also had great leaders that have, have set great examples, you know, to me, uh, but ultimately, you know, that, that enabling people to do what they need to do um, I think is, is, is absolutely crucial in, in this day and age. And that's whether you're in the business world or the not-for-profit world. People are just really limited on time. You know, I don't have an interest in, in looking over people's shoulder. I have an interest in allowing people, you know, to, to be themselves uh, and to make their own decisions. So, yeah, as I said, it's, it's about ensuring that you do that from the start and hiring the right people, you know, uh, and, and allowing them to do what they do. Hundred percent, and that's that's and that's how you build a culture. You know, you build that culture around. You know, we've got these goals, we've got this vision. Um, we're all here to do exactly the same thing, which is is, is to achieve those goals and visions. Um, and it's up to us to do it. And therefore, you don't have people going, "Oh, well, that's the boss's fault, or that's that person's fault," because everyone's empowered 
um, you know, to, to, to reach their goals. Um, but we're all working to that common, uh, those common goals and visions as an, as an organization. Yeah, no, I think that point about leadership, Giles, was so insightful. And I think the key point that stood out was the idea of being hands off and also the idea of learning by doing, um, you know, as someone who like, I want to obviously improve my leadership style and things like that. I think, um, like something that I find challenging is personally being more hands-off, but I think that's super important. And something that I like to ask a lot of people is when you lead a team, a very diverse team, how do you sort of get them to align to your values? And how do you how do you get them to align with the concept of making an impact? Because with a diverse team, they come from so many backgrounds, they have so much of life experience. And, and how do you do that while being quite hands-off and, and giving them the freedom to explore? Yeah, it's a really good question. Embedded into our organisation is, is social impact and, and Shri obviously mentioned before, you know, the UN Sustainable Development Goals and the importance of those, you know, for our organisation, but, but, you know, ultimately, you know, for, for, for the world, you know, it's, it's the world's, um, hardest, you know, it's, it's the world, it's, it, it's the world's hardest to do list. It's often referred to as the, the, the SDGs, but these are things that have to happen. You know, reducing poverty, gender equality, better education, health, etc. Um, you know, climate. Um, you know, uh, sustainable cities. Uh, so these are things that have to happen, and and that is really the bedrock of our organisation. You know, when you're coming into our organisation, you know that we have this dual purpose. You know, we are there to be a sustainable company that makes money, um, that 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 makes profits, um, and those profits. Um, means that we can do, you know, we can do more good work. Um, but simultaneously, we're also focused in on how do we accelerate social impact? Um, how do we improve our engagement with the UN SDGs? Uh, are there things that we can do in the work that we're doing um, that helps us to do that? And that's um, how we get that engagement because ultimately, you know, we all walk into organisations with one common element, uh, and that is we've all got uh, a beating heart. Um, and, you know, that really, uh, you know, engaging that is really important. And unfortunately, a lot of companies um, ask you, uh, you know, to check your personality and your values in at the door and just to, you know, fulfil this, you know, very narrow job description, just get the job done uh, and, and move on. Otherwise, we'll find someone else to do it. Um, and we're quite the opposite. You know, we want diversity because we know it works. We've all got lived experience. Everyone on our team, you know, have this lived experience that diversity works, but we've also been in environments where we've seen, uh, you know, where we've been bullied, we've been harassed, we've been victimized. Um, you know, uh, a lot of us have experienced racism, uh, you know, myself included. So we've seen the downsides, but we've also, uh, have, have seen, you know, the upsides and, and how diversity makes a difference. Because, you know, to give you another example, you know, one of my, uh, most favorable, you know, experiences in the world was attending Oxford in 2013. And I did a advanced management leadership course. I had, um, uh, I was there for a month, lived on campus, lived on, on my, with my fellow colleagues. Um, you know, we had three meals together. Um, you know, we learnt together. We, we rode, we did archery, we did yoga. We, did, we, we just had this incredible, you know, immersive experience and learnt from some of the best professors in the world. But that experience was shared with, 
you know, my cohort was 35 people, 26 nationalities, 19 different industries, and an age group of 35 to 65. So as I refer to it, it's my diversity on steroids experience because, you know, the people that are asking the best questions are always the people that have no experience about the case study. So, you know, when we're pulling apart, you know, the, the, the P&L of uh, the profit and loss account of Boeing, it's the guy that's running uh, a not-for-profit in Mumbai that's asking the best questions about their P&L because he's coming to it from a totally different perspective. Um, and so to get back to your question, um, you know, how it all unites, how it all gets together is, is just realising that we all have an impact that we can play. Um, you know, we're really lucky in the business that we, that we have, that, that we've built, that, you know, that we constantly um, are, are measuring ourselves, not only from a financial perspective, but importantly from a social impact perspective, but everyone is empowered to look at ways that we're, we can uh, accelerate that social impact. And we've got this great framework called the UN SDGs that help us do that. Yeah, I think that's really amazing because I think for us, it's a, it's a bit of a masterclass on what we can do at Greenfluentry. I think obviously on a much smaller scale, but something that we could implement. And like, cause I guess one thing we want to focus on is how do we get, like how do we get the community and how do we get everyone behind our vision? So no, like, something super interesting um and no and and thank you for sharing those pleasure yeah definitely um i, I wanted to reflect on 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 this concept of team building and i, I know um this has just touched on how we incorporate this um and how we can go forward and incorporate this into green fluence but on this, um, on this note of building sustainable teams, you reflect on making decisions based on consensus rather than majority voting. Why do you think this has played an important role in building a strong team culture? Yeah, the consensus building um, methodology or, or decision-making framework is something that I've always been exposed to, particularly on not-for-profit boards. A lot of not-for-profit boards will prefer decisions by consensus rather than majority, whereas the business world is is much more focused on, well, let's just get the majority and, and then we move on. So what I like about the consensus model is that although it takes longer, uh, what it promotes is discussion. And discussion is incredibly important um, for the work that we're doing, but just in general, you know, quite often, you know, we're just in these little bubbles we're just thinking about, you know, what we need to do um, and not necessarily considering all the issues. So that's what I really like about the consensus model is that it promotes discussion, it promotes debate, um, and those things need to be encouraged as opposed to just saying, well, let's just go with the majority. Now, um, there are times when you kind of hit that point and you go, okay, well, we've discussed, there's, you know, some people here that are not going to get there, but the majority of people are, we're going to have to go to majority, you know, to, to majority decision. But, you know, if I recount my, my time on the Amnesty International board of eight years, I didn't, we didn't have one vote that needed to go to a majority vote. All of them were done by consensus. And these are incredibly uh, wide ranging issues from refugee rights to indigenous rights to uh, domestic violence, 
you know, a whole bunch of really, really complex uh, human rights issues um, that we were able to get consensus on because we allowed our time, you know, we allowed ourselves the time to discuss um, and, and also respect. Um, you know, there was a high level of respect amongst the room for different people's views and opinions. That also came from diversity too, because people knew that I had a different background to others. Uh, I knew that other people had different backgrounds. So we all knew we had different backgrounds. We all knew we were able to bring those backgrounds into making decisions. Uh, but ultimately, when we were making those decisions, we were making those direct decisions as a director of Amnesty International sitting on a national board or sitting on a global board, um, but with human rights as the, uh, you know, as the underlying reason as to why uh, we were making that decision. Right. Um, and just going forward, I think your experience in um, not-for-profits with this concept of uh, building decisions based on consensus, has that, um, in, in your opinion, become a strong sort of mover of profit, profitization in any organisation? And do you think this sort of concept should be applied? Yeah, definitely. Uh, you know, I think, you know, one of the biggest problems with, you know, a lot of corporates, a lot of big organisations is they just don't give themselves the time uh, to discuss. Uh, but also there's a whole stack of other interplays going on. There's hierarchies and there's silos and there's politics, which quite often get in the way. Um, you know, working, uh, volunteering, I should say, for, for not-for-profits, um, you know, the underlying reason is always there. You know, we're there, you know, from a human rights perspective or we're there to improve the environment. So the underlying, you know, uniting factor as to why we're there. Now, that's not to say that not-for-profits don't have hierarchies and bureaucracies and, and um, uh, you know, and, and, and those structures, uh, but they're easier to break down if you're operating, you know, under that model of, you know, this is what we're, you know, this is what we're looking to achieve from a social impact perspective. So, you know, if you're, if you're only working under a framework of, we want to maximise profit. Well, that will lead to certain decisions. But also, if you're looking to maximise profit and you've got a very one-dimensional group of people that are looking to do that, um, i.e., you know, they're all males, they're all over 50, um, they've all gone to the same schools, well, you get no diversity of thought. Um, and that's where it doesn't matter whether you have consensus decision-making or whether it's majority because, you know, where the decisions are coming from are, are, are pretty much from the identical uh, space. So this is the great thing about, you know, impact investing is that you're constantly thinking about financial returns, social impact. You know, to get that social impact piece, you need a diversity of ideas and thought um, from amongst your team. You need people to be seeking far and wide for answers um, because if the answers were there staring you at the in the face, it would have been done already. Um, so a, a lot of it's about, you know, embracing that innovation. Uh, but, but really, at the heart of it, it's about embracing diversity, equity and inclusion, you know, to firstly make sure that you've got the right people in the room. Um, and then once you've got the right people in the room, the decisions are really easy. Um, but it, it's about having the right people in the room to make those decisions, but then also having a lens of financial return and social impact. And, and that's what our business is. I mean, embedded into our business is financial return and social impact. Um, and, 
having said that though, you know, more and more organizations are thinking that way and having to think that way because their customers are demanding them to, to think about uh, financial return and social impact. Their employees are demanding them to think about both, you know, both financial return and social impact. So, you know, while we may be a little bit unique in this space, um, what is happening more and more, which is fantastic, is that companies are thinking about both sides of that equation, the financial return and, and, and social impact. And, you know, on, on the flip side, you know, not-for-profits have been going that way for a long time, you know, for, you know, not-for-profits, you know, money used to be a really ugly word with a lot of not-for-profits. They're like, oh, no, we can't go out and ask for money. Um, but when you actually say, you know, to your fellow board members or your fellow, you know, uh, staff, well, actually, if we have more money, it just means we get to do more stuff and create more social impact. Well, that just changes the conversation. So we've seen that, you know, really evolve in the not-for-profit world where, you know, money has been seen as an enabler to create more social impact. And now on the flip side in the corporate world, we're seeing that um, considering social impact um, also helps um, you create more money and more profits because, you know, customers will come to you, employees will come to you if you're thinking both about financial returns as well as social impact. Awesome. No, that sounds very insightful, Giles. And I guess like that is at the lens of what you do at GII as well. Um, so I just wanted to get an understanding as to what you guys do, what are the, what are the main focuses and also the success and failures along the way. So our main focus as a business is we work under five key pillars. Uh, so gender equality, Indigenous communities, health, housing and climate. Um, so some of our um, successes, uh, definitely we've, we've created a couple of really interesting funds and, and are creating more in terms of innovation. Uh, so the one that I mentioned before, our gender equality fund, uh, is the world's first actively managed uh, impact fund for women and girls. Uh, we also created a cash fund, which is the, one of the first of its kind in the world that has no exposure to alcohol, gaming, tobacco, weapons, fossil fuels and adult entertainment. Uh, but also we've created with a partner an algorithm that then maps the portfolio to the UN Sustainable Development Goals. Uh, we're building a climate fund which will have, um, which will be focused on climate solutions and investing through um, solar or investing into solar, battery, wind, water, uh, and climate, um, uh, sorry, circular economy. Um, so that's been some of the, uh, the successes in building those products and showing people that we can use the ecosystem to, um, you know, to, to create these solutions. Um, in terms of failures, you know, what I'm concerned about at the moment, um, both as a business, but also for the industry is there is a lot of talk um, about gender equality, about indigenous communities, about health, about housing. Unfortunately, we're not, we're just not seeing the money move into those sectors um, in line with the talk. So, you know, here in, in Australia, we've got this $3 trillion superannuation market. Um, you know, pretty much, pretty much most of those super funds on their own, you know, could, could solve, you know, uh, the housing crisis, uh, for essential workers or a housing crisis for, you know, domestic violence, you know, people escape, uh, women escaping domestic violence. But, you know, they're just not able to either they don't have the right people on the team. They're not able to, um, you know, move their money, you know, into the sector. 
Um, you know, they're not thinking big enough. Um, you know, they've still got a, a different form of thinking. And this is just not super funds. You know, this is across the board. So that's the failure, uh, you know, that we have as a business, but also, I guess, as an industry to have, have more of these examples of, you know, creation of, you know, of, of examples where you can create financial returns, but also simultaneously uh, create social impact. Uh, and it's something that we need to do as a, as a whole industry, you know, as a business, we need to do it. You know, other fund managers are obviously moving into this space and educating people that it, that it can be done. There's clearly a, a market out there and, you know, investors want it, um, but we're just not seeing um, the money moving in line, in line with the talk. Um, and that will happen. Um, but, you know, my, my biggest fear is that just, this becomes just a marketing statement for a lot of companies to say, you know, here's the good that we're doing, um, uh, but not actually, you know, doing, you know, doing much more or, or not actually even doing what they, what they say they're doing. Um, uh, and even though that's a fear on the flip side, I'm also, and this is the eternal optimist in me, um, eventually those, um, you know, those companies that are just doing it for marketing purposes will get found out. Um, and ultimately, um, you know, there will be, um, you know, uh, you know, there'll be other companies that are actually doing it. And the beauty of social impact measurement too is that, you know, you have to be able to measure, map and monitor your social impact to a framework. Um, and that framework, um, is, is there, um, uh, being the SDGs or any other framework. Um, and then, you know, being able to report on that consistently on, on what you're doing is, um, you know, is, is going to be what will, um, uh, accelerate social impact for companies, but also, um, will, will catch out companies that aren't doing what they're saying they're doing. Awesome. Yeah. And I think on that concept of creating a social impact framework, um, I'm really curious to ask in terms of impact and how do you measure it from a monetary point of view? I, I know there's all sorts of guidelines and organizations like I heard of the gin, but how do you actually quantify the impact you make to say, I guess a vulnerable community and, and how do you choose between what projects that you'd like to invest in? Yeah, that's no, a really good question. So I guess to, Shree's earlier point around greenwashing, you know, one of the great things about impact investing is that you have to report on your impact. Um, so it can't be, and, and also by pure definition, impact investing, particularly the, the impact measurement side of impact investing needs to be actionable and intentional. So it's not, it's not good enough for impact to be a byproduct. It actually needs to be something that, you, I mean, it's great if it's a positive byproduct. Uh, but ultimately you need to be able to, you know, go into an impact investing knowing what the social impact is, is that they're, that they're looking to create. So in terms of frameworks and, um, methodologies, you know, the UN Sustainable Development Goals is definitely the one that is being seen as the universal benchmark to measure social impact. The great thing about the, the UN SDGs, there's 17 goals that there's 164 targets and 169 metrics that sit below those 17 um, SDGs. So they're not just um, motherhood statements. They're not just statements that are, you know, aspirational statements. There's actually a lot of quantitative and qualitative information that lie beneath uh, those targets. So the great thing, you know, as the industry matures, 
that being the impact investment uh, industry um, as the funds management industry matures and more fund managers transition from being so-called traditional fund managers to ESG uh, to then impact, the great thing is, is that they have to report and they have to report on that impact, but they also need to make sure, as I mentioned earlier, that it's actionable, uh, but it's also intentional impact that they're looking at creating. Um, and so how we do it as a firm is we have five pillars um, of that we work under, and that's gender equality, Indigenous communities, health, housing and climate. Um, and we work in each of those pillars. And, and, and while gender equality permeates across all those pillars, under each of those pillars, there are specific UN Sustainable Development Goals that we're pursuing uh, that will, um, you know, and, and, and also in partnership with our clients. Uh, that will help us make the brief around making sure that our social impact is is actionable and intentional. Yeah, amazing. I think like having that being quite intentional and actionable and those five pillars and then the UN SDG goals, I think that's a very nice framework to follow. Um, and and yeah, I, I think like that's like super important to prevent as like, I guess to prevent what she was mentioning, how do we avoid greenwashing and ensure there is consistency? Um, and yeah, I think this has been a fascinating conversation and now we're going to finish off with a bit of a bang. So are you ready for our speed round questions, Giles? Yeah, for sure. Awesome. Let's do it. So let's start out with our first question. What is one piece of advice you would give to your younger self? Ooh, uh, just do it. <laughs> Love it. Short and sweet. What are two exciting impact investment trends? The uh, intersectionality between impact and housing is, is definitely one, uh, but also the intersectionality between gender and climate as well. So the there's there's um, unfortunately you know women suffer the most, women and girls suffer the most in a with a, with a poor climate. Um, so hopefully, you know, in, a, in an environment where climate, you know, obviously the attention on the climate is increasing, climate investments are increasing, hopefully that will also um, have a positive effect on, on gender equality and, and certainly bridging that gap. Yeah, 100%. Um, I look forward to a day where we're thinking about that as our first priority. Mm. How can people learn more about you and your work at Global Impact Initiative. Yeah, thank you. Um, go onto our website. Um, it's constantly, we're constantly evolving that. Um, there's a resources page. There'll be uh, videos shortly. Um, we're also going to have links to other organisations as well, particularly like the GIN, uh, which is the an, an organisation which is you know 100% focused on on impact investing. So yeah, that that would be a great way. And and also please connect on LinkedIn. Um, you know we share a lot of our work, a lot of the information, uh, just a lot of uh, different projects that we're working on is is, is shared through LinkedIn. So please uh, you know connect with with myself and also uh, follow Global Impact Initiative on on LinkedIn. Sorry, I just got a quick bonus one, Giles. Going to play a bit of devil's advocate here, but. What if I was one of those really old school investors and I only cared about financial return and you, you would say you were in an elevator with me, how would you convince me to become an impact investor? How I would convince you is, I mean, it would it'd probably take a little bit more than an elevated discussion, but, um, you know, the great thing that, you know, unites all investors that everyone has, everyone has a heart. 
Um, and regardless of where, you know, where you're focused on in terms of your investments, um, the beauty of impact investment investing is that you can you can have the best of both worlds. You can have your financial return, but you can also create social impact at the same time. So, um, you know, harnessing in on what is important to people is 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 crucial uh, as a first step. But ultimately, if you put two funds in front of people and one's got just financial returns and the other one's got financial returns and impact, yeah, uh, nine times out of ten people would like both. Awesome. I, I, yeah, I think I'm convinced. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. Um, thank you so much for sharing your thoughts, Giles. Um, your insights and your valuable experience has been so um, so valuable just learning from them. Um, I don't know about you, Vis, but I particularly enjoyed this conversation around global init impact initiatives values, the UN SDGs, and the shift towards changing the focus on sustainability and the future and opening up this conversation about young girls and women being at the forefront of these vulnerable groups impacted by climate change which leads to this question of what are we and organisations like Global Impact Initiative doing to ensure that they are supported when they are facing these huge burdens and barriers to their livelihoods? To the green influencers tuning in, the call to action from this pod is to engage in conversations, keep learning about the ways in how you can maximise your opportunities to make a social impact. Once again, thank you so much, Giles. We really enjoyed this conversation and we wish you all the best in your journey ahead. And we're so excited to be following your journey with Global Impact Initiative. And to everyone tuning in, uh, follow Giles on LinkedIn. Reach out to him if you have any other questions. Great. Thanks, Giles. It's been a pleasure. Thanks very much, Viz. Thanks, Sharif. Really appreciate the discussion. Thank you. What did you think? I really enjoyed this conversation and found Giles' commitment to healthy teen dynamics and fostering a good work culture is something we can all take into our personal and professional lives. If you're new to Greenfluence, thanks for joining us, and hopefully you'll feel inspired to listen to our previous and future episodes. If you're a regular listener, thank you for listening in again. We really appreciate it and are so excited to grow our Greenfluence community. If you'd like to get in touch and become a Greenfluencer, check us out on Facebook, LinkedIn, and YouTube. All the links to our socials are in the show notes. We'd appreciate if you leave us a review and subscribe on your favorite podcast streaming platform. And we'll see you next time. Perfect.